In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, a very happy Memorial Day to you. I hope that you're having a great time. This is not only Memorial Day weekend, this is also the Sunday after the Ascension. And what that means is that this past Thursday was called the Feast of the Ascension in the church. Uh, it is the day that we mark the resurrected Jesus' ascent into heaven, and uh, that is the account that was read so beautifully by Nolan. It kind of looked like he memorized it, didn't it? Um, the ascension of Jesus happened 40 days after Easter, and so our commemoration of it always falls 40 days after Easter. It's always on a Thursday, and the Sunday after the ascension is very creatively called the Sunday after the ascension. So I've preached on the Ascension uh, a couple of times, and I'm sure that you remember uh, those sermons very well. But uh, maybe if we're really savvy, we'll put them in the, uh, in the notes below the video. Uh, but I want to focus on the gospel passage today, the passage that, that Father Trent just read. Uh, so the gospel passage this is an interesting selection uh, for the Sunday after the Ascension uh, because we have a glimpse into the prayer life of Jesus. And yet it's not a prayer uh, that he prayed before he ascended. We actually don't have a record of that prayer. Surely he, he said a prayer then, but we don't have a record of that. Uh, this is the prayer that he prayed the night before he died. The ascension is when the resurrected Jesus left bodily so that he could come back spiritually. And what he's praying about in this prayer, he's, he's praying for the disciples after he's gone, after he's ascended, really. And he's not just praying for the 11 faithful disciples. He's praying for all of his disciples, including us. This is a wondrous and intimate bit of Scripture. We're getting a glimpse into the prayer life of Jesus. We're seeing God the Son speak to God the Father. And, and he's not praying about, you know, this is not a, the sort of mundane prayers in his daily life, bless the fish and the bread, you know, that we caught today. Uh, this is the prayer between the Last Supper and his arrest and crucifixion. It's not the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. That would uh, take place an hour or so later. Uh, but this is the prayer where Jesus is basically praying, Well, Father, we've just about accomplished everything I came here to do. Right? This is cosmic. This is, uh, this is giant in its scope. And yet it is personal and intimate and pastoral. It's just so Jesus the whole Gospel of John is particularly poignant in showing the unity of Jesus and the Father, that their wills are in one accord. Now, that's not the car they drove. Jesus is saying, I don't do anything apart from what I see the Father do. And so here he's praying to God right before the crucifixion. Now, what would you be praying about right before you are going to be unjustly arrested, savagely tortured, and unlawfully executed. You'd be praying, 
help, get me out of here, God, anything. But not Jesus. Nope. Jesus is praying for you. Now, before we get to the, the part of this prayer that I really want to focus in on, can we just pause to say how incredible this is that our Savior Jesus Christ, the night before he dies, is totally consumed with his followers? I mean, I think I'd be consumed with how to get the heck out of there. But no, Jesus has a few precious moments left with his disciples. They're in the upper room, and, and in the heart and in the mind of Jesus, it's all about them. It's all about the disciples. And by extension, therefore, it's about all of Jesus' disciples, including us. And he's eaten the Passover meal with them. That was the meal that recounted God withholding his judgment from them and delivering his people uh, out of Egypt and out of slavery. And Jesus has given this meal a fuller meaning, saying, this bread is my body, this wine is my blood. He's given them the new covenant. He's washed their feet. He got up and he wrapped the towel around his waist and got down on his hands and knees, and that was a stinky, smelly job then, and it's just an act of love demonstrated through humble service. And then he exhorts them to uh, do the same, right? To love each other like that as a way of life. And then he's taught them about the coming of the Spirit. He's taught them to cling to the Father the way a branch clings to a vine. And now, before they leave and head over to the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays for his disciples. Pretty, pretty sensible way to end a gathering like this. Jesus certainly knows that he's facing the agony of the cross because he prays, the hour has come. The hour has come. And yet even then, perhaps especially then, we have this incredibly gracious and generous prayer from our incredibly gracious and generous Savior. And even then, Jesus' focus is outside of himself, on the other, on his neighbor. Right? The night before he died, Jesus was praying for us. And what is he praying for? He's praying for our eternal life. Now, there's actually several other things. Uh, just in this snippet, we only, our, our passage today is only half of this high priestly prayer but I just want to focus in on eternal life. We could spend all day. And I kind of think you would appreciate it if I did not do that. So, he prays for our eternal life. Let me ask you, what do you think of when you hear that phrase, eternal life? I think of just sort of the mental image that I get in my brain. It's sort of hazy. And it's something very far away. It's heaven. It's on the other side of this sort of nondescript line. It's, it's almost like a, you know, like the horizon. We actually preached a couple weeks ago, heaven on the horizon. And that's kind of the way I see it. It's, it's, it's hopeful, it's happy, but it's very distant and, and not very clear. That's kind of just, I don't know about you, but that's the mental image I get when I think of eternal life. It's just too big to really think of in a concrete way. 
And, and Jesus prays that he would be glorified. And he prays that he would be glorified so that the Father would be glorified. In other words, it's in his own glory that the Father receives glory. And, and, and so what Jesus is praying is that, is that God the Father would take this gruesome, painful, terrible injustice that Jesus was about to endure, and he would, the, the Father would make it his greatest glory, his crowning achievement. Why? He says, because this is the means by which he has given us eternal life. And that's why he came. To give us eternal life. He doesn't go back, though, does he, to in my father's house, there will be many rooms. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. He says something that to me is actually quite jarring and easy to skate past without understanding if, if we just, just move on through it. He says, this is what I'm talking about. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and that they may know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know God and to know Jesus Christ is eternal life. And we know him now. And we've stepped into eternal life. This is why he came. To give us eternal life. This is why he's headed to the cross. To give us eternal life. So that we may know him. So that we may know him. He ascended bodily, returned spiritually for our eternal life. Now sometimes we hear jokes, right, about how the Bible understands knowing. I hope this doesn't offend you, but we, we hear, we, uh, we've heard jokes saying, uh, knowing in the biblical sense, and what we mean there is sexually, right? And, and it is true that sometimes the Bible talks about sex modestly simply by saying a man knew his wife. It didn't always mean sex. It doesn't even usually mean sex. But the reason that it does sometimes mean sex is that biblical knowing is always deeply intimate. It's personal. It's relational. Now, we might say, sort of casually, we know someone. Yeah, I know that guy. We, we barely know them. We've just met them. And if, if it's deeper, we qualify it, right? We say, oh, we know them really well. But in the Bible and in the biblical cultures, really well is implied. It's assumed in the knowing. To know someone was to know them intimately, to know them really well. Glorify me, says Jesus. Glorify me, by me in the cross so that I can glorify you. And here's how we can both get glory. It's by our disciples knowing us. It's by our people connecting to us in a personal and intimate relationship. And that knowing, says Jesus, is eternal life. And very clearly, Jesus is saying that, that if you know the Father through Jesus Christ, if you have that relationship, then you have already crossed the threshold into eternal life. It's already started for you if you know Jesus. So what is eternal life? 
I think one way to think about it is this life without time, life that is not bound by time, life without limits. Remember, Jesus said, I have come uh, that you might have life and have it to the full, that abundant life. And of course, this doesn't mean uh, I came that you might not have problems. It doesn't mean I came that you would always have a full bank account. I came that you would never get COVID or cancer. I came that you would never lose someone that you love. I read in a Bible study this week that some people come to Christ thinking they've stepped on a cruise ship only to find out that it's a battleship. That image made sense to me. But we have stepped into eternal life now because we know God. Because He knows us now. But we still do live in this broken world, don't we? We kind of have a foot in one world and a foot in the other. In fact, if you were to go further reading uh, this prayer beyond our gospel passage today, Jesus says, just as I don't belong to this world, so they, so the disciples don't belong to this world. Heaven will be our home. We're certainly still here now. We have a foot uh, in both worlds. And before this prayer, the end of chapter 16, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Eternal life on this side of heaven means that no matter what, Jesus is with you. It means that the one who suffered for you now suffers with you. He rejoices when you rejoice and he weeps when you weep. And in fact, he is still praying for you. I mean, he's praying for us in this, in this prayer, but he's praying for you now. That's very clearly, we're told that throughout the, uh, the epistles, that, that Jesus is interceding to the Father on our behalf. He's in the ear of the Father, praying for you still, right now, on this Sunday morning. He died for your sin. He rose to give you new life. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing there? He is talking to the Father about you on your behalf. He is your advocate, as Father Trent preached about last week. Eternal life has begun. If you know the Father, and if you know the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit in you, which you do if you know the Father and know the Son. Eternal life has begun. I remember reading a quote from C.S. Lewis. I'm almost sure it was C.S. Lewis. I could not find it. So I'm probably going to mess it up. But you won't know it because you probably hadn't read it either. And this is what Lewis said. He said that we live this life on the, on the, at the gates of hell and at the doorstep of heaven. That if we don't know God, if we don't know Christ, then the suffering of this world is basically the, the gates of, of hell. And we hate it. We want to get away from it. And yet it is the doorstep into what awaits us. But if we know God, and we know Jesus, then the sufferings of this world are frankly the, the welcome mat. They're the doorstep of heaven. Because not only 
Are these the things that have you longing for and leaning into and experiencing deeply your Savior? We know Him. We experience Him in that suffering so much more closely in this life. And not to mention these things give us compassion for the world around us. Give us a servant's heart. But also these things have us longing for the life that will be free of such pain where there will be no more tears, where there will be no more sickness, no more dying. If you know Christ, then in a very real sense, that life has already begun. And you are on the doorstep of eternal life. But if you don't know Christ, don't you want to? Don't you want? tell you this. He wants you to. Because he came that you that we all might have eternal life. And this is eternal life. To know God and to know Jesus Christ.